Well, like I said, I am I'm blessed to be able to open up the Word of God with you. And uh, what happens when, when Scott's going to be gone is he'll, he'll talk to, to one of us, uh, usually a, a month or two out, and he'll say, hey, I'm planning on being gone on this Sunday, and I would like you to fill the pulpit. I'd like you to preach. Would, would you like to, to preach? And I, my answer is always yes, always yes, because there's nothing I would rather do. And uh, then the next thing comes and Scott says, I want you to preach whatever passage you want. Whatever God's laid on your heart, wherever God has you, whatever it is, I want you to, to preach that passage. And sometimes that's an intimidating thing because you may or may not have noticed there's a lot of verses in here. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that you can go. And, and, and there's so many different options. But what I chose to do this time was something a little bit different than what I've done in the past. So if you go onto our website... And you go over to the, uh, the media tab, or I don't know exactly what it says, but you can go and navigate to our sermon audio section. And in that section on our website, we have the audio for the sermons that have been preached at Grace Church of the Valley since this church's inception. Going back 15 plus years to the beginning of Grace Church of the Valley, all of those sermons are in that audio section. And you can sort them in a number of different ways. You can sort them by category. You can sort them by speaker. So if you want to just see all of the sermons that Al Mohler has ever preached here, or, or all the sermons that Scott Artavanis has ever preached here, or even if you want to see all the sermons that I've ever preached here, you can do that, and you can sort that way. Um, but you can also sort those sermons by the key passage, the, what passage is the sermon based on. And, and I went to our sermon audio section, and I did that. I sorted all the sermons that had been preached here at Grace Church of the Valley by the primary passage that the sermon was expositing. And when you do that, you get this layout of the 66 books of the Bible, and you see things like, a hundred plus sermons from Ephesians. Uh, you see hundreds of sermons from the Gospel of John. You see hundreds of sermons from many of these books that we've spent a long time in, and there's great value to that. We, we did a ton of, of in-depth study of the book of Ephesians. Um, but there are also books that we don't have very many sermons on. There are even some that have never been used as the primary passage. Now, I want to be clear, we're not a church that's unhitching from the Old Testament by any stretch. We, we love those books and we, we cite to them often and frequently, but there are some books that have never served as kind of the, the main um, passage in a sermon. And so I decided I wanted to do one of those books. I wanted to preach a sermon from one of those books this morning. And so as I looked, one of those books was the Song of Solomon. And I decided I would leave that for Scott. Um, but instead, we're going to be in the book of Leviticus. We're going to be in the book of Leviticus this morning. Specifically, we'll be in Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. And Leviticus is a book that if I think on it, I have a, um, a complex relationship with Leviticus throughout my life, growing up in the church and coming to Christ at an early age, but struggling with... Um, with the discipline of Bible reading as a, as a young man, as a teenager. And I, I came to think of Leviticus as my Bible in a year graveyard. Because every January, I would say, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. From cover to cover, I'm going to read it all. And I would do really good through Genesis. 
Because Genesis has so much rich and compelling narrative, right? You go from, from creation to the fall. You get the patriarchs. You, you, you get to see the, the story of Joseph and how Israel ends up in Egypt. And it's this really compelling narrative throughout Genesis. And then you get to Exodus and that, that narrative continues, right? You, you, have, you have the Exodus. You have God demonstrating his power in bringing his people out of Egypt, the plagues, the the humbling and defeat of Pharaoh. You have all of that in Exodus. But then at the end of Exodus, things start to get a little dicey. They get a little hard because it starts describing some of the laws and talking about how to build the tabernacle and things like that. And, and it starts to slog down a little bit. And for teenage Aaron, it was difficult. But I would make it through. I would put my head down and I would get through the end of Exodus and then I would turn the page and I would see Leviticus chapter one. And Leviticus is hard. Because Leviticus is this Old Testament law. It's in many ways a a law book. There's one brief moment of, of narrative in the middle of it, but But for the majority of Leviticus, it's simply laying out the laws of God, laying out the laws of the Old Testament. And it can be hard. It can be hard to understand, hard to apply, to see what does this mean for me? What is a sin offering or a burnt offering? What does this mean for me? I'm not doing either of those. What are these laws about tattoos? What do they mean for me? That's for you, Josh Nichols. What do... What do these things mean and how do they apply? And and it can be difficult, right? And so often Leviticus is where I would would throw in the towel, but here's the thing. See, while Leviticus can be a difficult book, it's, it's necessary for the believer. Why? Because without this book, without the law that is contained in it, without an understanding of the content and the character of the law, our understanding of Christ is going to be limited. Without an understanding of the law, our understanding of grace is going to be small. Without an understanding of the law, our understanding of the gospel is going to be weak. And so, Leviticus serves to us as an example, as a portion of that law. And we see in Leviticus, we see laws of sacrifice, laws about the priesthood, laws about purity and cleanliness. We see laws about feasts and festivals, laws about righteous living in the areas of of sex and relationships with neighbors and, and even the food that the Israelites are to eat. The law shown in Leviticus is a complex and sweeping law that covers all areas of the life of God's people, but there's an overarching theme from the very beginning of Leviticus to the very end. All throughout that law, it's all shown in an overarching theme that we see here in Leviticus chapter 19, verses one and two. This is it, this is Leviticus in a nutshell. All of that law is all under this theme. Leviticus 19.1, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. All of those laws about sacrifice, about the priesthood, about cleanliness and ritual purity and all of those things, they're all summed up, they're all falling into the category, the theme of this, you shall be holy. This commandment 
for you, for God's people to be holy. This is the theme of the book of Leviticus. You shall be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. So before we jump into the details of holiness, let's start with a basic definition. What does holiness mean? What does it mean to be holy? Well, many of you, if I were to ask you for a definition of holiness, you'd probably give me the answer to be holy is to be what? Set apart, right? Set apart or pure. It is to be set apart. My, my sons, my boys, we do uh, little catechism questions with them in our, in our family devotion time. And, and one of them, we asked Grant, my five-year-old, to say, what does it mean that God is holy? He says it means that he's pure and set apart from his creation. Holy has this idea of being set apart, being separated. And so when we say holy, we're talking about being set apart and separated. Set apart from what? Set apart from the world. Set apart from sin. As God is is speaking to the Israelites here, he's telling them to be set apart from the sinful world around them. Be set apart from the wicked, pagan, idolatrous nations that surround you. You are to be set apart, distinct, and different. So holiness speaks to being set apart in kind of the negative sense of holiness. In the negative sense, we are to be set apart from sin, but there's also a positive sense of holiness because we're not just being set apart from sin, we're being set apart for something. We see this in another place in Leviticus where this command to be holy as God is holy comes up. See, this is a command that's repeated throughout Leviticus, and the first time it shows up is in Leviticus chapter 11. And in 11.44, listen to this, you don't have to turn there, but it says, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. So that same commandment, be holy for I am holy, But he precedes it with this, consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. See, holiness is being set apart, but being consecrated, that's the positive aspect of holiness, where we're not just being set apart from sin, but we're being set apart and dedicated, devoted, or consecrated to something. That word consecrate... The first time it shows up in the writings of Moses, the first time it shows up in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis 2-3, it says that God consecrated the seventh day and he made it holy. Consecrate is used to describe how God makes the seventh day, the Sabbath, holy. And what does he do? He sets it apart from the other six days, yes. But he also sets it up as a day devoted to the worship and honor of God, the rest of God's people. So the first time it shows up is in speaking of the Sabbath. The next time it shows up is in Exodus, and in Exodus chapter 28, it's used of the the ephod, the the, uh, priestly garment. He says that this garment will consecrate the priests to my service. Because it sets them apart from the rest of the people of Israel as they wear this this holy garment and it dedicates them, it shows that they are dedicated, that they are consecrated to the service of God in the temple. And so being holy has that negative sense of being set apart from sin, set apart from the sinful world, but also the positive sense of being set apart for and devoted to God and His glory. And this is what the laws of the Old Testament did. 
They separated the people of Israel from the world around them. They they set them apart and made their separation from the pagan nations that surrounded them clear and obvious. They created this moral separation from sin, but also a practical separation from the world around that pointed the Israelites towards the consecration of their own hearts. It reminded them that since they are God's people, their lives and their hearts should be entirely consecrated to the service of God and the seeking of His glory. And so with that idea in mind, that the holiness that we're talking about here is being set apart from sin and from the world and consecrated, dedicated to the service of God and his glory. With that definition of holiness in mind, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at three aspects of the holiness that God's people are called to in the book of Leviticus. Three aspects of the holiness that God's people are called to in the book of Leviticus. And what we will look at is this. First, we'll look at the reason for holiness. Second, we'll look at the reward for holiness. And then finally, we will look at the requirements of holiness. The reason for holiness, the reward for holiness, and the requirements of holiness. So let's start with the reason for holiness. The reason for holiness. Well, the reason for holiness is clear. It's right there in Leviticus 19 verse 2, isn't it? It says this, I, or sorry, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. What is the reason for the holiness of God's people? God's people are called to holiness because God is a holy God. God is a holy God. So what do we mean when we say that God is a holy God? Well, we mean that he's set apart. Set apart from what? Set apart from all sin. And he is dedicated to the pursuit of his own glory. And when we talk about holiness, the holiness of God, oftentimes theologians will separate, they'll talk about two separate categories of God's holiness. One way that we might think about it is God's moral holiness, and then on the other side, God's majestic holiness. So when we talk about God being holy, that we are called to be holy as God is holy, that Israel is called to be holy because God is holy, we're talking about God's moral holiness and also his majestic holiness. God's moral holiness is this idea that God is morally perfect. That God is light and in him there is no darkness. He is truth and in him there are no lies. He always does what is right. He is the very definition of righteousness. He is perfect morally. He does no wrong. We see this as a theme throughout scripture. We see it in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 5 verse 4 where it says, You are not a God who delights in evil nor may wickedness dwell in you. We see it all the way in Revelation, in Revelation 15, 4, where it says, you alone are holy and the nations will worship you for your righteous acts. We see it in the book of Job, Job 34, 10, where it says, far be it from God that he should do a wicked thing or the Almighty that he should do wrong. From cover to cover, we have this idea that God is morally perfect, that he is morally holy, that he is set apart from all sin, that he is righteous and set apart from all wickedness. 
So we have the idea of God's moral holiness as part of the reason for the call of his people to holiness, but that's not all that we mean by God's holiness. Because God is not just set apart in the moral sense. We also talk about God's majestic holiness. And what does that mean? That means that God is unlike anything else in all of existence in terms of his glory, in terms of his power, in terms of his majesty. It means that he is greater and more powerful than anything else that exists. He is more beautiful, he is more majestic, he is more righteous, he is more glorious, he is more holy than anything else. He is completely and fundamentally set apart from everything else in existence. Why? Because everything else in existence is creation and he alone is creator. All the other, the gods of the nations around Israel, they are these false gods, but the God of the Bible, Yahweh, he is the real and true and living God. He is set apart from everything else, unlike everything else in majesty, in power, in beauty, in glory. And one of the clearest pictures we have of this is Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6. As he's there in the, the throne room of God, we see the throne of God, God seated on his throne and he's surrounded by seraphim, he's surrounded by angels. Now angels are morally holy beings. They're sinless. They're not like you and me. These are angels who are not fallen. These are angels who are morally perfect. And yet God's holiness, his majesty, his glory shines so brightly that those angels for all eternity, flank the throne of God and they cover their eyes. They cover their eyes with their wings because even a morally perfect being like an angel cannot look upon the majestic, holy glory of God. And what do they repeat? What's their refrain over and over for all of time? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. He's the only one who is eternal, the only thing with no beginning and no end. He's holy in his moral perfection, but he's also holy in the sense that he is fundamentally unlike anything else in all of existence. He is higher, he is greater, he is more majestic, he is more powerful, he is more glorious. So when we say God is holy, we're saying all of that talking about his moral holiness, but we're also talking about his majestic holiness. And so our holiness then is to be grounded in God's holiness. Our holiness is to be grounded in God's holiness. Now, you may be picking up on the fact that I'm saying our a lot. Here we are talking about this Old Testament law, this, this commandment, this covenant that God is making with his people thousands of years ago to this chosen people of Israel. But here we're reading it thousands of years later, you and I are not Israelites. And yet I say that this commandment is ours, our holiness. Why do I say that? Well, in no small part because it's repeated. It's repeated in the New Testament. It's repeated to the church. It's repeated explicitly in the book of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 
Starting in verse 14, we read this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The call here for us is to be holy in our conduct. Now, that does not require us to follow all of the the ritual and ceremonial laws that we see in Leviticus. Because that outworking of holiness has changed somewhat, but God's people in all places at all times still have this eternal call to be holy because that call is based on the character of God himself on the nature of God himself, on the person of God himself. We are to be holy as God's people. Why? Because God is holy. But God's holy nature, his holy character, is not the only reason for holiness that we're given there in Leviticus 19.2. It's not just because God is holy that we are called to be holy. Because if we read it, it does not say this. It does not say, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. It does not say, you shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, am holy. No, what it says is, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, Your God am holy. You see, our holiness is grounded in God's holiness, yes, but God's people are also called to holiness, not just because God is holy, but because God is our God. Our holiness is grounded in His holiness, but it's also grounded in His relationship with us. It's grounded in his majestic power, glory, eternality. The fact that he dwells in unapproachable light, yes, that is where our holiness is grounded, but also in the fact that he is a personal and relational God. You see this command, you shall be holy, for God is holy. This is a command that's repeated six times in the book of Leviticus. And every time that it's repeated, it always ties the character of God, the holiness of God, in with God's relationship with his people. So in chapters 19, 11, and 20, it says this, the Lord your God is holy. In chapter 11, again, it says, the Lord who brought you out of Egypt is holy. In chapter 20, it says, the Lord who has separated you is holy. In chapter 21, the Lord who sanctifies you is holy. Even in 1 Peter, though he quotes it as, you shall be holy for I am holy, the verse that precedes it says, you shall be holy for the one who, what? Called you is holy. So the call to Israel and the call to us, to God's people, is that we are to be holy because of God's holiness and also because that holy and righteous and majestic and powerful and eternal God is our God. God is holy, but he's also a personal God. 
He's the Alpha and the Omega, the ruler of heaven and earth, the, the beginning and the end. But he's also the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's the God who calls Abraham out of Ur and promises him that he will bring a mighty people from his family. He is the God who spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. He's the God who knit David together in his mother's womb. And so the call for God's people, the call to holiness is on the basis of God's own holiness, yes, but also on the basis that we are God's people. That that holy and righteous God has brought us into relationship with himself. And so, as God's people, we are called to be holy. This intimacy with God shows, this intimacy that that God shows with his people is part of the basis of our call to holiness. We are called to be holy because God is holy, but because also he is our God. And so Israel's holiness was to be pervasive because they were God's people. And so every aspect of their lives, from their their diet to their downtime to their treatment of family, their, their kinsmen, even their treatment of strangers, every bit, every nook and cranny of the life of the Israelite was to be holy, set apart from sin, different than the world around them, and consecrated to God, devoted and dedicated to serving Him. They were God's people, and so every aspect of their lives was to reflect that. That's what we see in the book of Leviticus. All of these laws coming together in this simple call, you shall be holy, set apart, dedicated to me, for I am holy and I am your God. And if Israel obeyed, if Israel was holy, if Israel was set apart and consecrated in the way that God was calling them to, then there was the promise from God of great reward. See, this is a covenant. It's a, it's a, it's a contract. It's, if you do this, then this is what will happen. And so that brings us to our, our next aspect of holiness that I want to look at, which is the reward for holiness. We've seen the reason for holiness, now we're moving on to the reward for holiness, and for that, we need to leave behind Leviticus 19, turn a few pages to the right, to Leviticus chapter 26. Because in Leviticus 26, after we've had this command, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, has been repeated six times. Now we arrive in Leviticus chapter 26, starting in verse three, And we see the reward. We see the consequence for this holiness. It says this, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you the rains in their seasons, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last till the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land securely. And I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land, and you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, 
and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. And I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat of old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. So this is a covenant agreement. Terms and conditions between God and his chosen people. It has these terms, if you do this, then I will do this. And here we see God saying, if you do this, if you follow me in holiness, if you are set apart from the world around you, set apart from sin, dedicated to my service, then I will prosper you. I will bring the, the rain in its seasons. I will, I will bring forth your, your, your endeavors will all be successful. I'll give you food to eat. I'll give you safety. You will conquer the peoples around you with ease. Five of you will chase 100. 100 of you will chase 10,000. I'll give you safety and security, political might and power. I'll give you riches and food. I'll give you everything. If only you will be holy. And everything that he's mentioned up to this point, these are temporal promises. Temporal promises of, of blessings here in this life. Now, we don't have these same promises today. God does not make these same promises to us today. He does not say, if you are holy, if you live a life of holiness, if you're morally upright, then I will give you the rain in its seasons. And I know that there are many of you here who are farmers, and this weekend you are wishing that you had that promise. You're wishing that you had the promise that the rain would only come in its season and it would not come in mid-August. You're wishing you had that promise, but you don't. You don't. There's no promise of temporal blessing that comes to holiness. Despite what the prosperity preachers might try to tell you, there's no promise that if you live rightly that God will prosper your business or um, that he'll give you everything that you want. He'll give you your health, wealth, and prosperity. There's no promise of that at all, but... While there's no promise, there is a a general pattern of holy living leading to temporal blessing. What does that mean? It means if you live a life of holiness, there are going to be things in your life, blessings in your life that come from that. For those of you kids in here, kids who are young, I think of my own life. When I was a kid, when I was in elementary school, junior high, I was in the same place you are, not at this church, but I was sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. And I had given my life to Christ when I was just a little kid. I think it was five years old when I first trusted in Jesus. And and I was walking with Christ from that point. My whole life, as far back as I can remember, I've been walking with Christ. And sometimes I've almost regretted that when I have to give my testimony. Because I feel like I don't have a good testimony to give, right? And so I get up and I go, well, you know, I, I repented from my sins when I was five years old, so I was kind of repenting from, I don't know, wetting the bed? Is that a sin? Does that? I don't think I wet the bed when I was five. They can confirm. We'll see. Um, but, but here's the reality. First of all, not only is the testimony of someone who comes to Christ when they're five years old not boring because it's still a dead sinner who is being saved and given new life, but also what an incredible blessing. 
What a grace and mercy from God because how much heartache and pain and suffering have I been saved temporally because I've spent my life seeking holiness, because I was raised in a home that pointed me towards God, that pointed me towards holiness. And so I I avoided the, the pains and the struggles of so many friends that I've heard who who went through their their teen years and their young adult years seeking after the things of this world and and wasting time away with with sin and debauchery and drunkenness and drug addiction and, and all the pain and the suffering that has come from that. The temporal blessing of of the holiness that I was raised in and pointed to is that I never had any of that pain. I never had any of that struggle. I never had any of that heartache. So while we're not promised temporal blessing for holiness, as a general rule, if we live lives of holiness, there will be blessing. If you live a life of holiness, if your family is dedicated to holiness, your family is going to be happier for it. If you're committed to holiness in your marriage, to obeying God in your marriage, to fidelity in your marriage, your marriage is going to be stronger for it. There's no promise of temporal blessing for holiness, but as a general rule, temporal blessing comes from holiness. If you want proof of this, read the book of Proverbs. Our marriage and our family, even in our health, that temporal blessing does come from holy living. But all of that blessing... All of that blessing is simply temporal. It's temporal, it's temporary. It's not eternal, it's not ultimate, it doesn't last forever. So even for Israel, God has said so far, if you follow me, if you're holy, if you obey my statutes and my commandments, I will grow your crops and I will conquer the land for you. I will give you safety and security and peace. And all of that's great, but all of it's temporary. All of it's finite. All of it is blessing for this life right now. But the ultimate blessing for holiness is not temporal. It's not a a set period of time. The ultimate blessing for holiness is eternal. If we continue reading in chapter 26, we get to verse 11, and we see this. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. See, the ultimate blessing for holiness is not peace, it's not prosperity, it is presence. It is the presence of God. It is that those who are holy may dwell in the presence of God, may live in relationship with God, that he would dwell amongst them and they would be his people and he would be their God. That is the ultimate reward of holiness, but that reward is not automatic. It's based on an if-then. If you are holy, then this will happen. And an if-then always implies an if-not. If you are holy, this will happen, but if not then something else is in store. Look at verse 14, it says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do these commandments, if you will spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all of my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever and consume your eyes and make your heart ache. 
And you shall sow your seed in vain, and your enemies shall eat it, and I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate shall, you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will still not listen, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And then he goes on 27 more verses explaining exactly what will happen if Israel is not holy, if they're not consecrated, if they're not set apart, if they don't follow his statutes and his rules. So that brings up the question, what degree of holiness is required that we might secure the blessing, temporal blessing, yes, but to a much greater degree, the blessing of God's presence instead of the curses of unholiness. What level of holiness do we have to attain to to get column A and not column B? Brings us to our final aspect of holiness, which is the requirement of holiness. And look, the sweeping law, the broad-ranging laws of Leviticus, touching every area from ritual purity to, um, to moral interactions with neighbors, This sweeping law of Leviticus gives us a glimpse of the level of holiness that God requires of his people. But that's made more explicit in the New Testament. Specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus says this. He says, I tell you that your holiness, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. If you want to see the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be in the presence of God, then your holiness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, exceed that of people who have dedicated their entire lives to living in light of this law that we see in Leviticus. As if that wasn't explicit enough, later in that same chapter, Jesus says it like this. He paraphrases, you shall be holy as God is holy. And he says, you shall be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. What is the standard? What is the bar of holiness that God has set? The standard is perfection. The bar is perfection. It is this perfect holiness that God's people are called to. And that standard is an impossibly high bar. It's a bar that you and I could never, ever clear. We could never be holy enough It's an infinitely high standard set by an infinitely holy God. And so most people, when faced with that infinitely high standard of God, what they're tempted to do is to take God's standard, throw it out, and to substitute in their own. And they say, okay, well, we don't really need to to reach this perfect standard of holiness Instead, in order to to go to heaven, in order to be in relationship with God, in order to be in God's presence, all you really need to do is you just have to be a generally good person. You have to do more good than bad, and yeah, you're going to mess up because nobody's perfect, but but they're honest mistakes. It's honest mistakes. And so they set this new bar, this lower bar, not the, the standard of perfection that God has set, but this new, be a generally good person who makes honest mistakes standard. But here's the thing. Even if this was the standard, even if living as a good person who makes honest mistakes was the standard, you and I wouldn't clear that bar either. 
We wouldn't clear the bar of perfect, righteous holiness, and we wouldn't clear the bar of a good person who makes honest mistakes. In fact, you could put that bar as low as you want to, and you and I are still going to find a way to limbo right underneath it. We're never going to clear the bar. We're never going to attain to that level of holiness, no matter how low the standard is. Why? Well, let me tell you this. I, I said earlier that I've, I've grown up in the church and I've spent um, my adult life in ministry. I've heard a lot of pastors, preachers, Sunday school teachers, camp speakers talk about the Old Testament law. And I've often heard them say something along these lines. There are 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. And that's more or less true depending on how you count it. But there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. And even if you wanted to follow all of those, you never could. I can't even remember what the Ten Commandments are. Do you remember all of them right now? No, some of you don't. So how are you supposed to follow 613 commandments? You'll forget them, you'll mess up, and you're, you're never going to do that perfectly. And it's this idea that we sin, we transgress God's law, we, we do these acts of unholiness because we forget or because we slip up. It's the good person who makes honest mistakes. But that's not what Leviticus says. That's not what scripture says. Look back to verse 14 in chapter 26. It says, if you will not listen to me and will not do these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do my commandments but break my covenant. See, we don't disobey God. We don't break his rules because we're good people who make honest mistakes. We do it because we abhor his rules. Because we hate his law. We live lives of unholiness. Not because the bar is so incredibly high, but because we are so incredibly unholy. We disobey because we hate God's law. And we are unholy because we do not want to be separated from the world. Why? Because in our own, on our flesh, we love the world. We love the things of the world. But 1 John 2.15 says, if we love the world, then the love of the Father is not in us. James 4.4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so in our flesh, we are friends of the world. We are enemies of God. We are lovers of the world. We are haters of God. And so even if the bar was... A good person who makes honest mistakes, every single one of us would fail to clear that bar. Because on our own, we're not good people who make honest mistakes. We are hopeless and helplessly wretched, unholy sinners. And we rightfully deserve not the reward of holiness, but the wrath of a holy God. So that's the book of Leviticus. It's easy to see why I often didn't get through it as a teenager, isn't it? It gives us this glimpse of the majestic holiness of God, a peak of God's glory. But that peak of his glory, that light of his holiness shining through the lens of the law, all it does is show in stark relief just how wicked we are. It makes our sinfulness undeniable. And the requirements of holiness that, that are far beyond us. The reward of holiness, it is unattainable. That's the inescapable conclusion of the book of Leviticus. We are called to be holy as God is holy, but we cannot. 
because we don't even want to. We're called to be holy as God is holy, but we fail. That's the inescapable conclusion of Leviticus, the inescapable conclusion of the law of the Old Testament, but by the grace and mercy of God, Scripture does not end with the law of the Old Testament. Scripture does not cease after Leviticus because after the law comes the gospel. After the Old Testament comes the new. After Leviticus comes the book of Hebrews. And so if we turn to Hebrews chapter 10, listen to this, starting in 10.10, it says, and anybody... He's talking about the, sorry, he's talking about the will of God through Jesus. And he says this, and by that will, we have been sanctified. That means made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The standard of Leviticus, the standard of the law, the standard of holiness that God calls his people to is that you must be perfect. It's an impossible standard on our own. But here in Hebrews, we see this. He has perfected those who are being sanctified. He has perfected those who are being sanctified. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for us? Well, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you've never put your faith and trust in him, you've never repented and turned from your sins, what this means is that you are not holy. You're not holy, you're not righteous, you're not good enough and you can't be. You will never merit the reward of God's presence. But Jesus is holy. Jesus has merited that for you. And so if you repent and you turn from your sins and you believe and you trust in Jesus, you will be declared holy by the holy God before the holy God. And if you're here today and you do know Christ, you have done that, you have been declared holy, then here's the truth for you. You are holy before God, but that holiness that Christ works in us, it is both a past and a progressive reality. You have been declared holy and righteous before God, and now you are called to be sanctified, to live a life in line with that declaration of holiness. The tenses there in verse 14 are so interesting. They say, he has perfected. You are holy. Those who are being sanctified, present progressive, you are continually being made holy in your actions. You've been declared holy before God, and now you are called to be sanctified, to live a life in line with that declaration of holiness. It means obeying the commands of God and being holy in a negative sense by being set apart and avoiding sin, being separated from sin, but it also means being holy in a positive sense. Being consecrated and devoted to God, having the goals of your life fundamentally reoriented in every facet and in every stage of life that you are not seeking the things of the world around you, but you are seeking the things of God. And that reorientation will cause you to be weird and to be different because that's what holiness is. 
your family is dedicated to holiness, your family will value things different than the world around you. As parents, you will not be seeking to get your kid every athletic or academic advantage as your primary goal. Your primary goal will be to disciple your children that they might love and serve and follow God. And so when it comes up and you have the opportunity to join that travel team that plays on Sundays, and it's gonna mean that you're gonna miss months of church, you're gonna say no because our goal Our orientation as a family is not to the things of this world, but we are holy and set apart and we are seeking the things of God in business. It's gonna reorient your plans and your purposes no longer focus primarily on profits or growth, but on your witness, on your demonstration of God's glory through the way that you go about your work. If you're retired, it's gonna reorient how you think about that season of life. And as your your peers are spending their twilight years on beaches and golf courses and cruise ships, you're going to live completely differently. You're going to live a life that is set apart because your goal is not your comfort. It's not your rest. Your goal is to proclaim the glory of God to all people. So you devote yourself to the service of God, not to the service of your rest or comfort. So here's the question I want to leave you with this morning. We'll be done. Are you holy? Have you put your faith and your trust in Christ and so been declared holy by the holy God himself? And if you have, are you walking in light of that holiness? Not simply avoiding sin, but living a life of positive holiness, devoted to the glory of God in everything that you do. The call on you is to be holy because the Lord, your God, is holy. Are you answering that call?